The following program is being brought to you on the Voice America Business Channel. For more information about our network and to check our additional show hosts and topics of interest, please visit voiceamericabusiness.com. The Voice America Talk Radio Network is the worldwide leader in live Internet talk radio. Visit voiceamerica.com. The views and ideas expressed on the following program are strictly those of the host or guests and do not necessarily reflect the views and ideas held by the Voice America Talk Radio Network, its staff, and management. Welcome to the Money Answer Show with host Jordan Goodman. Whether you are starting out, deep into your retirement, or somewhere in between, the Money Answer Show has the know-how to help you. Now here's your host, Jordan Goodman. Welcome to the Money Answer Show. This is Jordan Goodman, your host. My guest this hour is R.C. Peck. He is the Chief Investment Strategist and founder of Fearless Wealth. Welcome to the show. Nice to be with you, R.C. Hey, it's good to be here. Thanks. Let's just start with a little bit of your background before we get into the investment thing. What has been your background in investments, and what is your approach at Fearless Wealth? Well, I mean, so my background, I bought my first stock in high school when I was 15. Um, before I graduated high school, my parents had their life savings embezzled by their financial advisor, uh, which was very catastrophic to everyone in the family. Um, so even before I really even got into investing, I kind of saw the dark side of it and how things could go really bad. Um, and so I think one of the reasons why I actually got into being a money manager, financial advisor as an adult is because I saw what happened to my parents. And not only did I not want that to happen to them again, I didn't want it to happen to me and I didn't want it to happen to anyone, um, you know, that I cared for or loved for. Um, and, you know, in my 20s, I went looking for someone who could teach me what really worked. And so I started with, I guess, the usual suspects. I went to, you know, the big box financial advisors. But I kind of learned quickly that either they didn't want to tell me what worked or they actually didn't know what worked. Um, and so I was lucky enough to have the time or fortunate enough to kind of teach myself what really works in investing in my 20s. Um so I'm pretty passionate about this. I, you know, I come from a different approach because I don't actually believe, and I know it's very vogue today to say Wall Street can't help you or doesn't help you, um, but I had that belief in the 90s, <laughs> even when the stock market was going up. Um, so in answer to your question about what, what my approach is, I really take the approach of one is, Humans are absolutely not designed to grow money or invest money. They're not designed to do it. They probably won't be naturally designed for hundreds or thousands of years. And so one of the approaches I take is understanding or making the assumption that we're going to try to sabotage ourselves almost every step along the way. And I don't mean that to sound negative or cynical, but for me, and for my clients, it's been very effective because then we, you almost go into investing assuming you're wrong. So when you are wrong, you're prepared for it. And I notice most people who have been hurt or crashed their portfolios over the last 5, 10, or 15 years, they've kind of gone in assuming they're right. So without sounding too too contrarian or too different, one of my approaches is actually assuming we're wrong so when we are, then we're prepared. Now, of course, I want to be right, but um, that, that's what, probably what is, a good answer for you. What has been your track record at investing the way you have over the last few years? 
You know, I invest in four different strategies. I consider allocating into strategies more important than allocating into assets. Um, if you were to look at my returns over any three- or five-year chunk of time, going back to 1998, which is when I first started helping people other than myself, um, they've been anywhere between 14 to 16% uh, compounded annual per year. And what are those four strategies? Let's talk about them one at a time. Okay, so the four strategies. Now, again, I look at investing pretty differently. So the first strategy I designed in the early 90s, I called market probability. Um, I met these two guys who would count cards at the blackjack table, and that's what they did for a living. And I, I met these two guys when I was in college. And I realized that if a human brain could count a deck of cards and tilt or know what the probability is of winning or losing your hand, which meant they would put different dollar amounts down on each hand, then I, I I made the assumption that a software could count the stock market and figure out the probability of making or losing money in the stock market. So the first strategy I built was called market probability, which literally just gets up every morning and, and quote, unquote, counts the stock market to figure out what the probability is of making or losing money. Um, now, I'm not a trader. I'm an investor. So these these probability signals they change every few years on average. So um, the last signal change was the beginning of 2000. Let's see, we are in 13, beginning of 2012. Um, but market probability had people out of the market before the 2000 50% loss and the 2008 58% loss. So that's all about the stock market. It's all about probability. So it's be, um, you're in or out of the market. Basically, it's an on or off switch. Yeah, it's an on or off. Either you're in the market or you're out of the market, meaning you're actually in cash, um, which is, is is blasphemy for a lot of people because they believe that you always, always, always have to be in something. And I actually don't necessarily believe that. Well, I don't believe that. And I also believe you're always invested in something. Um, and what I mean by that is people have a belief that if their money is in cash, it's not invested, it's being set aside, it's not doing anything. I actually don't have that belief. If people's money is in cash, in, in this example, in U.S. dollars, then I say your money is invested in U.S. dollars. And I want people to think that their money is always invested somewhere, so they're always paying attention to it, especially the fact that the, the, um, the Fed wants inflation in this country and the U.S. dollar has lost about 30% of its purchasing power against other uh, kind of fiat-backed currencies over the last 10 years, that there is no such thing as not being invested. Okay, so basically you're, the first switch is you're in the market, you're out of the market. What would be your second strategy? Yeah, so the second strategy is I call obvious trend <laughs> because that's what it is. What, what this strategy does is it identifies investments that are trending up, but then – that have pulled back or corrected while still staying in their upward trend. So let's say these, uh, you know, these investments, when they correct, they correct 20 or 25%, but that still keeps them in the trend. So what obvious trend does is it identifies these stocks, waits for them to come to that pullback, and then purchases them after the pullback has happened. And once that's happened, then the strategy assumes it's going to be wrong so it prepares for it to be wrong in case the stock, stock keeps moving against it. But 
the majority of the time when the stock market is in high probability mode, and when I mean majority of time, I'm talking 80% of the time, these other stocks, they do their correction, they scare people out, and then they continue to move higher. So that, that's the, my second strategy called obvious trend. So what would be some examples today of some companies that were up and then have corrected and you think they're at good prices now? Well, yeah, I can, I can name two. So one that I added in December was Intel. Uh, Intel fell 35%, did not break out of its formation. A 35% fall or correction feels extremely bad to people. And so at the beginning of December, we bought um, Intel at about $20. Um, but, but the specifics aren't necessarily important, and, and it's been going up since then. The one, the one thing I do want to say, though, is when something is falling, it is always accompanied by bad news. So looking at news to find out the reason is only going to scare you more. Um, I'll give you one more that I haven't purchased yet, but has hit my kind of um, watch list, and that's Apple. I had a, I wanted to wait for a nice big correction to happen in Apple, and Apple topped out at $705, and currently it's around $425. And I was waiting for a big correction, and I figured, because I looked at the last 10 years of Apple, that about a 35 to 45% correction um, was due and would still keep the stock in an upward trend. So that's an example of one that is now on my short list and I'm watching. So how do you know when it's a temporary correction or it's a more fundamental negative in their business and they're not going to recover or go back to their obvious trend? Yeah, I mean, it, it, it's a great question, and it's, it's actually a very important answer to have for that question. And the answer is, you, and I don't mean to sound flippant about this, but you only know until after it happens. So let's say Intel was purchased at $20. Now, it had already fallen 35 So I said to myself, if this falls another 15%, I'm going to assume I'm completely wrong, and I'll take my 15% loss. Now, I'm managing my loss both on the stop loss and the amount I put into that individual stock. So when I get into these individual stocks, I'm assuming I'm wrong, and I'm already setting up to be wrong. So if I am, and it keeps moving against, and let's say Apple's good days are all behind it, and it's going the way of Microsoft, over the next 10 years, then my downside is limited. But I didn't lose 40 50%. I lost that 15%. Your, your downside is limited because the bad news is already out and already baked into the price. That and, I mean, a 25% correction is not trivial. That's, that's a significant correction. And so I'm literally playing on the probability side that, how much more, like how much more bad news needs to be priced into this? And the answer is I don't know. But if you look at enough price charts over the last 20 years, you can tell that those turning points typically happen between that 25 to 35% correction. Okay. And what is your third strategy? So the third strategy is called LTEC, which stands for long-term economic cycles. And this approach is actually what, what, what supports this is a fundamental idea that large masses of people, tens of millions or hundreds of millions of people, when put into a group, literally mass psychology, you can not only track what they're going to do, but there's some sort of repeatability to what they're going to do. So one thing that huge groups of people do in investing is over time, they will pay more and more for $1 of earnings. And they'll do that 
during these 17 and a half year long cycles. And then there'll be a turning point or a tipping point where they say as a group, I'm just, I'm not going to pay a dollar more than what I'm already paying for $1 of annual income. So, for example, in 1982, people were paying about $6 for $1 of, you know, annual income. The stock market, the S&P had a P.E. ratio of 6. And from 1982 to the year 2000, people kept acting riskier and riskier with their money until one day they were paying about $45 for $1 of annual income. And then that that whole thing reverses itself, and people start to take on less risk, expect more for their money, again, over these 17-and-a-half-year cycles. And so if you know which one of those cycles we're in, and you know that it takes that mass behavior, this 15 to 20 years, to change the behavior, then you can identify what the best assets are to be in. And so where do we stand in that cycle now? So where we stand on the cycle now, um, the cycle changed in November of 2000. The P.E. ratio was about 43. Today, the P.E. ratio of the S&P 500, or basically what people are willing to pay for $1 of annual income, it's at about 20. So think of it this way. The last time the S&P was at, let's just say, 1,600 back in 2000. It wasn't, but let's just say it was 1,600. It was close enough. People were paying about $45 for $1 of S&P annual income. Fast forward to the year 2007, people were only willing to pay about $30 for $1 of annual income. Fast forward to 2013, people are now willing to pay $20. So in the last 12 years, people are starting to want more for their dollars. Now, that's 12 years, 12 and a half years. History, about 300 years of history, says this usually bottoms in high single digits. So when people are willing to pay nine, eight, maybe even seven dollars for one dollar of annual annual earnings or annual income, that means we're near the turning point. But in hundreds of years of history, it's never bottomed at twenty. So we're not not at the bottom yet. Okay, we're going to take a break. Uh, this is Jordan Goodman of the Money Answer Show. My guest this half, half hour is R.C. Peck. Uh, he's the chief investment strategist and founder of Fearless Wealth at fearlesswealth.com. We'll be back after this. We're always talking business. Talk to an expert. Call now, toll free, 866-472-5790. That's 866-472-5790. Voice America Business Network. Everybody needs expert advice when they look to develop their personal brand. Join Rochelle McCrary for The Leader and the Muse. Rochelle and her guests will bring you practical tips and tools to help you build your brand in ways that propel you into greater personal and business success. For strategies, stories, and much more, tune in to the Voice America Business Channel every Friday at noon Pacific Time, 3 p.m. Eastern Time for The Leader and the Muse. And get ready to take your brand to the next level. Are you and your family in debt? Today, over 40% of American households are spending more than they make. And that means our society is getting deeper and deeper in debt. Escape the debt trap with host and attorney Kenneth Neely is here to help you avoid the problems involved with debt, including rebuilding credit, finding bankruptcy, short-selling your home, resolving IRS tax problems, and much more. 
Escape the Debt Trap airs live every Thursday at noon Pacific, 3 p.m. Eastern on the Voice America Business Channel. Today, enterprise technology is both strategic and global. Each week on CIO Talk Radio, IT thought leaders from around the world share their experiences with listeners as they discuss with Sunjog All how they are trimming costs and partnering with business to innovate and help IT become more competitive. This means better care for customers and improves the corporate bottom line. If you want to keep up with IT thought leadership, listen to CIO Talk Radio with Sunjog All every Wednesday at 7 a.m. Pacific Time, 10 a.m. Eastern Time on the Voice America Business Channel, the bottom line in business talk. From the boardroom to you, Voice America Business Network. You've been listening to The Money Answer Show with Jordan Goodman. If you have a question for Jordan or his guest, please call us now at 866-472-5790. That's 866-472-5790. Now back to Jordan. Welcome back to The Money Answer Show. This is Jordan Goodman, your host. My guest today is R.C. Peck. He is the Chief Investment Strategist at FearlessWealth.com. Welcome back to the show, R.C. Great to be back. Tell people a little bit about the newsletter and what they can find at your uh, uh, website, FearlessWealth.com. Yeah, so, you know, one of the things I wanted to do uh, when myself, when I was looking for help and support, is to find a place where I could feel like I was connecting to the person. And so one of the first things people are going to notice who join the membership is they are able to connect with me a lot and personally and specifically ask their own questions. Because I know when I was going through the learning process, one thing that was most important to me was to be able to connect and actually ask the questions. And so one of the things they're going to notice with the membership is how much um, access they can get to being, being able to ask their questions. Another thing I wanted to provide for the members was um, all the tools that I wish I had. So when they go in, they're going to immediately see that there's a tool called Deep Value Real Estate, which I literally used to do a weekend workshop for $5,000 that would show people how to buy Deep Value Real Estate. And I made the decision a few years ago to stop doing individual weekend courses uh, necessarily and put all the content in one place and provide it all just kind of under one, you know, set of tools and research. And so they're going to see that. If they want real estate and learning, it's there. If they want to figure out how to get cash flow, it's there. And, of course, the portfolios are there. There's um, model portfolios for all the strategies. And so it's very it's, – it's designed in a way to help people stay clear and organized on what to do next. And how much is a subscription per year? If you pay monthly, it's $1,000 a year. If you pay annually, it's $700 a year. Okay, very good. Uh, we were talking about your different strategies. Uh, so we, the first three we talked about uh, were <clears throat> the um, obvious trend strategy, uh, the uh, market probability strategy, and the LTEC strategy. Is that right? And then, yeah, long uh, term. Yep, yep. And then what is your fourth strategy? Yeah, so the fourth strategy is called margin of safety. Um, and, you know, the idea behind margin of safety is, well, there's two things. One there's a certain point where you can buy something where there's such a huge margin safety that if you're wrong, you'll be only, you'll only be wrong in time, but not in money. Meaning you may just be early, but you won't be hurt. The second part behind margin safety is there are some incredible 
investors out there in the world. Um, some of the incredible investors are behind very big walls, you know, private equity walls or hedge fund walls or hundreds of millions or tens of millions or millions to just even get access to them. But there are a handful of investors who have absolute incredible long-term records that you can um, literally have them, I think of it as having them manage your money. Um, and the most obvious one that comes to mind is Warren Buffett, right? He has a company, it's publicly traded, and I think of his company as almost like him managing your money. And to date, no one's really come close to his long-term record. And so margin safety identifies these people who have these long-term records of getting it right, not every week, not every year, but over those three- to five-year chunks of time. And literally, you're just leveraging the people who know how to do it. Uh, and that's what margin safety does. It identifies those people or those investments so that margin safety is very high. So give us an example, too, of a margin of safety investment today. Well, I would say last year Berkshire was. It, it, it fell 25%. So, I mean, anytime Warren Buffett's company goes on sale 25%, I, I think it's a no-brainer to buy it. Uh, and, then, and if I'm wrong about it happening last year, then it happened at the end of, of 2011. Um, I think there'll be a certain point if earnings, and I, I'm not one who necessarily follows earnings or follows news, but let's just say next week Apple comes out with their earnings. I mean, they will on the 23rd. And let's just say it's just the market thinks it's horrible, and Apple sells off 10%. And it, you know, so now it's at a 50% correction. Well, I would consider buying a company that has a market cap of $360 billion, of which has $130 billion in cash, which is growing their profit at 19% a year. Now, it may fall a little bit more. But that would be an example of having a very high probability of making money in that stock over time. Very good. Now, you also are a big follower in the commodities and gold market. In fact, you were a commodities trader, I think, for a while. Is that right? Yeah, yeah. I was a commodities trader on the Coffee, Sugar, Cocoa Exchange. So we have this dramatic event going on today where gold prices are plummeting, the biggest they've ever done in 30 years. Uh, what is your evaluation of what's going on in the gold market? And is it time to get, get in or what is your view on what's happening now? Um, I have lots of views on this. Um, first of all, it is incredible. It is, um, something that has happened in the past. Um, so when gold made its last move, which was from basically 1970 to 1982, you could go back and say before that, um, there was a period right in the middle of it where the spirit was broken of anyone who owned gold. Um, gold hit as high as $200 an ounce, and within a year it was down to $100. So it did a 50% fall. And after that 50% fall, it then went up about 800%. The, the actual percentage falls or increases are not what's important. What's important is the behavioral part of that. During any secular bull market, whether it's gold and silver or it's stocks, there's going to be one, if not two, periods where people really have an incredible amount of doubt, where their spirit is challenged, if not broken, where they're really questioning if what they're doing is right. So what I can say about gold and what, it's, what has happened to it today and Friday is 
not only have the fundamentals not gotten worse, they've actually gotten better. Now, look, gold is falling. So technically it's falling, and that is actually happening. But it's not falling because um, Ben Bernanke and Mario Draghi and Kuruto over in Japan have all gotten together and said, you know what, the whole money printing thing, we're going to stop that. In fact, we're going to start sucking up all that liquidity out of the market, and we're going to let the normal price discovery mechanism of the stock market take its course and clean out the problem children and, you know, do, do real creative destruction. Now, if that happened, then something fundamentally would have changed with the market. But this is a what feels like a pure technical smashdown. And it doesn't necessarily matter why it's getting crushed, but it is. Um, so so you're seeing it as a buying opportunity then? Absolutely. Whether it's today. I mean, look, if someone doesn't have any gold, starting to buy gold, I think, is a very smart decision where if they look back two years from now, they'll be happy. And, and, and what it, would be the best way for you to buy it? Physical gold or ETFs or gold mining shares? What is your favorite way to buy gold? So if someone, if someone did not want to take possession of their gold, and I'll talk about both, but if someone wanted to buy the best kind of paper gold, meaning buying with a ticker symbol, I think the best way to buy that is with a closed-end fund, meaning one where the, a company buys a set amount of ounces and then has a set amount of shares for those ounces. So that would be a fund like GTU, George Tom United. It's a closed-end fund that owns gold. Um, an example for silver, meaning a closed-end fund for silver, would be PSLV. Um, I would not buy a open-ended fund like GLV or SLV where you hope and trust that the accounting mechanisms are done properly. Um, so that's if someone wanted to buy gold or silver with a ticker symbol. If someone wanted to buy gold or silver physically, I would just go with the with silver, I'd probably go with junk silver, which is just silver minted in the U.S. before 1965. And if they wanted to buy gold, just go with uh, American Eagles and, and hold them in their possession. You don't have to do anything fancy or complicated or intricate. Just, you know, plain and simple gold and silver. So you're saying this is kind of a technical uh, crash here, that it'll find its bottom and the fundamentals will, will always come through. And because of all the money printing around the world, gold will go back up. How high do you think gold might go? You know, it's it's a great question to ask. Um, when I when I started doing my investing and research, and I'm a market historian, I went back to all these articles and newspapers in the early '80s, and I looked I looked for anything that would talk about what the Dow was going to do over the next 18 years. And at that at that time in the early '80s, the Dow Jones was at 1,000. And in looking through two years of Wall Street Journal articles, I never once found someone saying, you know what, at the end of the century, the Dow Jones is going to be at 12, 13, 14,000. Um, and if anyone did have those thoughts, they probably would have lost their job immediately after that article. So when you ask what I think gold will go to, um, the answer is I don't know. Um, you know, I think the question is, how much, how many dollars will be printed and how many yen will be printed and euros and pounds will be printed. Um, I don't think an unreasonable answer to your question is somewhere north of $4,000. 
um, the specific answer isn't as important as the direction, and I, and I don't know the timing, but one of the things that can clean up a lot of the problems in this world is to revalue gold to a high enough number so central banks in the world that have gold can kind of reset their um, their books. And I don't know if that number is at 4,000 or 6,000 or 8,000 or 10,000 or 3,000, but it's it's much higher than it is here. And the other thing I'll also say, too, quickly, Jordan, is the world is heading towards gold. It's not heading away from it. And you and I are having a conversation now in North America, specifically in the United States. And I, I will tell you the experience and relationship to gold in China and India, and I've lived in both of those countries, is very different than it is in the West and even in the United States. So, you know, I'm sure the Indians today are lining up down the street outside of jewelry stores buying <laughs> more and more gold because they're like, I can't believe it's this cheap. I'm sure yes. the same thing is happening in China, but here in America, it's not. Very good. Well, thank you so much. My guest this half hour has been R.C. Peck. He's the chief investment strategist at Fearless Wealth. Uh, you can find out more about his newsletter at fearlesswealth.com. You found out a lot of interesting ideas uh, during our half hour together. So thanks so much for being a guest on the Money Answer Show, RC. Thanks, Jordan. And we'll be back with another guest, Sean Hyman, uh, after the break. business community's first choice in internet talk radio voice america business network dialogue is the single most powerful leadership tool we have to make a difference in the world leading conversations with host cheryl esposito creates a place for that dialogue tune into the voice america business channel every friday as cheryl hosts new conversations among leaders from around the world in business government art economics and social change We'll explore big ideas and everyday actions and learn how their own leadership has led them to discover a newfound sense of possibility in the world. Leading Conversations with Cheryl Esposito, bringing big thinkers together in conversations that make a difference right here on the Voice America Business Channel every Friday morning at 10 a.m. Pacific Standard Time. Everybody needs expert advice when they look to develop their personal brand. Join Rochelle McCrary for The Leader and the Muse. Rochelle and her guests will bring you practical tips and tools to help you build your brand in ways that propel you into greater personal and business success. For strategies, stories, and much more, tune in to the Voice America Business Channel every Friday at noon Pacific Time, 3 p.m. Eastern Time for The Leader and the Muse. And get ready to take your brand to the next level. Leadership is a vital skill set in today's competitive global economy. Being a leader is not enough to succeed. You must optimize your performance and know how to imbue others in your organization with leadership skills. Practical, actionable leadership insights are the focus of Leadership Development News, hosted each Monday at 9 a.m. Pacific, noon Eastern, by Kathy Greenberg and Relly Nadler on the Voice America Business Channel. Doctors Greenberg and Nadler, who coach global leaders on how to be most effective, will share their insights and contacts. The path to leadership excellence begins here. Voice America Business Network, the bottom line in business. You've been listening to The Money Answer Show with Jordan Goodman. If you have a question for Jordan or his guest, please call us now at 866-472-5790. That's 866-472-5790. Now back to Jordan. 
Welcome back to the Money Answer Show. My guest this half hour is Sean Hyman. He's the editor of the Ultimate Wealth Report. Welcome back to the show, Sean. Hi, good to be here. Let's plunge right into the dramatic news of the day, uh, which is the incredible plunge, particularly in gold prices, but also silver and other kinds of commodities, oil and so on. Uh, what do you make of this? Yeah, uh, gold and silver both had been in a uh, in a sideways range for about a year and a half, and um, they, they'd formed really kind of like a rectangular range. And they gold broke the uh, lower side of that around fifteen twenty, and so when when a pattern's been in that enforced for that long, there's a, there's a ton of stops below that main area, and uh, that just builds up clusters and clusters of it for for long term uh, buyers. And uh, and so as that uh, breaks and hits those, I mean, just hits pockets of um, of uh, of stops, which just ignites the selling to the uh, to the downside. And then, of course, the emotional frenzy starts that starts people you know, more panic selling, and then margin call selling comes in after that. Um, and then, of course, you have a lack of buyers that which follows after that, which makes it to where nobody's itching to get in because they feel it's you know it's it's going to fall further. In the near term, and so that's been the case with both gold and silver. Um, so now the question is, you know, where might it stop? Um, of course, those those patterns when they break out, typically um, the asset will go at least the width of the range of the pattern. And so, it, just kind of in plain English, that would put uh, gold down to about the 1250 or so level, and it would put silver down into the teens, possibly 17 or 18. Now, it does mean they could go lower than that because those are minimum price targets. But then after that, once the sell-off is over, um, I expect a good rebound in the months that follow uh, because, uh, one, silver is getting below its uh, production cost. around. Well, it, it will be getting below its production cost around $23 an ounce. And then gold's uh, production cost per company does vary between like $1,000 and $1,500 an ounce. But with it dropping so... Um, it will be getting below a lot of companies' production costs as well. And a lot of these miners would just simply halt production, slow production, things of that sort to bring supply down to where demand would out, uh, you know, put more pressure on supply and eventually the prices would go back up like it has for natural gas, like it has for oil and things of that sort once prices dip solidly below production costs for a length, any length of time. It is the drop, and it's not only gold and silver, but other commodity prices giving us an economic signal like uh, people are more worried about deflation and inflation, or kind of what's the broader implication of this big move? I, I don't think it's an e- economic uh, uh, phenomenon, really, uh, or, or or something deflationary, because all, all signs that I see out there are at least mildly inflationary. Um, also, we're not seeing a huge corresponding move in the dollar today, too. So I think it's just you know raw gold selling, really, um, and and part of it probably is. You know, these days you've got ETFs that um, that where you can easily buy gold. So um, people that aren't as savvy and experienced in gold that used to just be in gold futures markets or holding coins or or, or uh, bars and things of that sort, that was a little bit savvier crowd, and they weren't going to be usually as easily shaken out. These days you've got a lot of ETF holders, and those those guys uh, are going to be a lot more emotionally quickly affected and shaken out. And so as those ETF holdings are sold off. Of course, that's going to go into sell-off of gold futures as well, and uh, and and make this these sell-offs even more pronounced and, and happen a lot more quickly. Now, the stocks in the portfolio that you recommend typically are related to the commodity cycle. They're in coal and steel and gold and and so on. 
Um, yeah. is, is the long-term case for higher commodity prices still uh, intact here? I mean, some would say this is a major waterfall decline, and this is a sign that commodity prices are going to go continually lower from here. Yeah, I, I believe that they will. Um, I believe you'll continue to see governments print money, which will continue to stoke inflation. You'll have more dollars, more currency chasing a finite limited amount of goods. Um, also, of course, governments like to tax, and it's hard to tax in a deflationary environment, but it's a lot easier to ta- tax uh, inflated uh, assets that are going up in, in price. So I think you'll see it from that point, too. And then you know, I just I believe we're we're still in a period of global growth, even though it's slow and it's not robust like we would want to see. That growth over time still puts its own uh, set of, of of pressure and demands upon commodity prices as well. So, no doubt it'll be volatile. No doubt, no doubt we'll see some sharp pullbacks along the way. But I think overall, when you look at long term charts, you'll just continue to see commodities continue to head higher. Okay, uh, you talking, we had a recent piece about uh, kind of a margin of safety, uh, the way Warren Buffett buys things for the long term at, at good prices. Is, is the current situation allowing a setup for kind of a margin of safety for getting into the commodity stocks you like? I think so, um, because a lot of the stocks that we have bought, um, one, we bought them at low PEs that were anywhere from PEs of 6 to PEs of 11, whereas at the same time, the like the S&P 500, for instance, was in PEs of 15 to 18. And so we were buying stocks a lot more cheaply. So when you're buying these businesses cheaply, and um, our average dividend is, is double that of uh, uh, the uh, of even a lot of Warren Buffett's holdings. It's probably not quite double the S&P, but it's close to it, uh, of our average holdings. And so that gives some extra um, buffer as well because uh, stocks that have the rich dividends – the bigger, more savvy money is going to be a little bit less uh, quick to pull the trigger and sell because they're wanting to rack up those dividends over time, and they know it's so hard to find, you know, three and four and five percent dividend yields um, in this day and age in which we're living in right now. What other area you look at as currencies? Um, now, some would say that what Japan did recently, as far as uh, inflating its money by wanting a two percent inflation rate kind of set off this beggar-thy-neighbor currency war. What, what is your expectation of what's going to happen in the currency in light of that? Well, there, there are a lot of currencies in the currency war right now. Um, overall, the U.S. is in it, although they're not uh, devaluing their currency just in the immediate near term. Uh, but they're in it overall. Um, the Swiss are in it by talking down their currency. The British are in it. Um, you know, and, and Japan is definitely leading the charge because so they've been the most aggressive, uh, first about verbally uh, undermining their currency and then now being able to, you know, back it up and actually uh, literally undermine their currency. Um, and so I think that's going to continue. Uh, so what you have to do is, uh, one, you have to go to the currencies that are not playing the currency war, currency devaluation game. And those are uh, currencies like uh, Australia's dollar uh, Sweden's krona, Norway, uh, Norway's krone, uh, Singapore's dollar, uh, things of that sort. And you don't necessarily have to get into the, the forex market per se to to take advantage of those. Um, there, there's you know banks like EverBank.com and different places in the U.S. where you can get involved with those type of products without having a foreign currency account or opening something overseas. So the average American can take advantage of those and preserve their wealth through those also. But it's also another reason why I believe that still long-term it's a great place for people to hold some gold and silver 
because these central banks are getting more and more aggressive about the devaluation of their currency. So if I were a Japanese citizen, I would sure rather hold gold or silver than yen right now. And uh, the U.S. dollar, despite the amount of money the Fed's been printing, has in general been going up against other currencies, against the uh, yen, against the euro, and so on. Uh, is this kind of a false thing, or is, it, is the dollar going to keep rising here? Um, I think temporarily the dollar could keep rising just off the uh, the sell-off we're seeing for gold and silver. Um, it hasn't had a big response yet, but it, it could be a delayed response. Um, I think the dollar index could possibly go up to uh, 84, 84 and a half or so before cratering and, and heading down lower. Even if it did that, it would still be creating overall lower lows, uh, excuse me, lower highs on its long-term charts and still would keep the theme of its long-term downtrend intact. So I really think that we're probably towards the latter innings of the uh, of this latest run-up in the dollar, and that over the coming months we'll see the dollar roll over and then inflation stoked, commodities rise once again. Is there a long-term threat that the dollar would no longer be the world's reserve currency? And if so, what might replace it? Um, there is there is a threat um, because we're seeing it more all the time play out. Um, a few years ago, you know, Brazil and China started doing some direct trading together and not going through the dollar, which had kind of been unheard of. And uh, the ante's been up a bit now because uh, Australia and China are starting to do the same thing now. So that's an even bigger uh, economy and bigger uh, currency that that's being involved with. And there's starting to be others that are potentially going to be formed out there. Um, so China is now circumventing the dollar slowly but surely, um, and so that's going to produce less and less demand and less and less faith in the U.S. dollar, which sets the stage up for an eventual uh, time when the, uh, the dollar, I believe, will no longer be the world's reserve currency. It's something that's hard to time. It's you know it's hard to say if it'll be you know five years, ten years, or twenty years down the road. But but over time, I believe there will be a process that happens along the way, long before it's ever officially not the world's reserve currency, to where you'll still see the dollar uh, being devalued and us feeling the effects of it. As to what would replace it, it's really hard to say at this point. Um, it could be a basket of currencies. It could be something commodity-backed. It could be the, the Chinese yuan. Um, stranger things have happened. You know, it was the U.K. pound before uh, before it was ever the U.S. dollar, and I'm sure there came a day where they never thought it would be anything else other than that. And, uh, of course, we've always been so accustomed to it being the U.S. dollar. I'm sure, you know, most average American thinks, well, it'll always be that way. But, you know, everybody gets their turn every so often, and uh, it's over long periods of time. But it could, it could be China, China's day to shine in the sun next. So what would be the impact on Americans if the U.S. dollar was no longer the world reserve currency? The impact would be, see, right now we have all of our commodities and goods uh, priced in U.S. dollars, and so that gives us an edge and a benefit because um, we don't have to convert over to another currency to to purchase those goods. Um, but overall, um, if that went to another currency, that currency would be strengthening overall. Ours would continue to weaken. And so what that would mean was just it would it would uh, be some immediate um, inflation that we would experience and an, almost an immediate loss of some purchasing power and then and then a gradual at least a gradual steady loss of purchasing power from that point on as these uh, this other new currency, Strengthen and the the sentiment improved with it, with it now being the world's reserve currency. So it would not be a, a good day for U.S. consumers for sure. So, it, it, uh, so how could people prepare for that? 
Well, what they should do is, is you know, what, what I'm doing with our Ultimate Wealth subscribers, you know, we, we are uh, investing in commodity-related stocks because, you know, as inflation is stoked and as the dollars devalued, commodities will go up against that. Um, and then also investing in things that are stocks that are, are aided or helped by foreign currency movements also. So really everything that we're doing is uh, defending against inflation and devaluation of the dollar and we're also taking in uh, oversized dividends as um, you know along the way as well. So it's really just positioning your own personal wealth to be protected and even grow that wealth in that type of an environment because we're not going to change what the Fed's doing uh, or any of these central banks around the world. So we've really just got to take it upon ourselves to position our own self in the right stocks that are going to benefit from both dollar devaluation and the rise of inflation. Very good. We're going to take a break. Uh, this is Jordan Goodman with the Money Answer Show. My guest this hour is Sean Hyman. Uh, he's the editor of the uh, Ultimate Wealth Report. Um, and we'll be back after this. Stocks, bonds, investment opportunities, financial news, and talk. We can help. Call us now toll-free, 866-472-5790, 866-472-5790, Voice America Business Network. Bob Pritchard has over 30 years of experience as a straight-talking business consultant and author working with some of the top Fortune 500 companies. Now he's come to the Voice America Business Channel to help you and your business. Tune in to the Bob Pritchard Radio Show for information about starting and successfully running a profitable business. From the movers and shakers to great marketing screw-ups, you can't afford to miss a single edition of the Bob Pritchard Radio Show, Tuesdays at 5 p.m. Pacific, 8 p.m. Eastern on Voice America Business. Is your business model robust enough? In today's ever-changing business environment, people are working to transform themselves, their futures, and their business. Tune in to Business Reinvention with your host, Nancy Lynn. To stay ahead of the game in business, you have to constantly reinvent yourself and your organization. With Nancy's experience and that of her guest experts, you'll learn from stories of inspiration, innovation, and forward thinking. Listen for Business Reinvention, live every Monday at 4 p.m. Pacific Time, 7 p.m. Eastern Time, on the Voice America Business Channel. In sales, are you a lion or a vulture? Lions don't wait, they just go for it. Vultures hang around until the lions are finished and just pick up the scraps. How can you set yourself apart as a lion? Join the other aspiring sales lions and listen to Forget Patience, Let's Sell Something with host Ty Maynard. You'll learn the tips and strategies of top sales professionals. You'll gain more clients at a faster rate and at higher margins. If you're a sales professional, business owner, or executive, listen in every Thursday at 8 p.m. Eastern, 5 Pacific on the Voice America Business Channel. Voice America Business Network, the bottom line in business. You've been listening to The Money Answer Show with Jordan Goodman. If you have a question for Jordan or his guest, please call us now at 866-472-5790. That's 866-472-5790. Now back to Jordan. Welcome back to The Money Answer Show. This is Jordan Goodman, your host. My guest this half hour is Sean Hyman the editor of the Ultimate Wealth Report. Welcome back to the show, Sean. Thank you. Tell people how they can get both the free blog you have and your or newsletter. 
Yes, I've got a free blog at moneynews.com, and you can just simply click on the Insiders tab and go to my name, Sean Hyman, but that's at moneynews.com, and that's for free. And then there's the subscriber-based uh, newsletter, um, which will usually range anywhere from 50 to $100 a year, uh, which is at ultimatewealthreport.com. So ultimatewealthreport.com. There's also some free videos on there on the homepage that you can see and find out more about me as well. I want to get to some of the stocks. One thing you've been talking about, though, is the banking system, and I wanted to get your reaction to what happened recently in Cyprus uh, as far as kind of confiscation of uh, deposits over the 100,000-euro level. What does this portend as far as the, uh, the trust in the banking system worldwide? Yeah, it, you know, a lot of people will say, well, this is an isolated event. It's little old Cyprus. Nothing like that could happen here in the U.S. where everything's different here. But it, but it's really not. When you get um, governments that are over indebted and overextended and when you get banks that uh, get that way as well, at some point somebody's got to pay up. And uh, we saw what uh, Cyprus decided to, to do was basically legally rob everybody that had over 100,000 uh, euros in their account, which was above their insured account amount, and take up to, up to 60% or an average of 60% of everything they had in there uh, to, to cover that to get, um, get, to get their bailout. So one, I mean, I think it sets the precedence of, um, you know, it, it, here in the U.S. don't have, you know, over the $250,000 uh, in any one personal uh, account. I was just telling my mother-in-law that this weekend because of you know what's happened in Cyprus. Um, you know, and the, and the other is to yeah, definitely make sure you've got your money spread around to different uh, places and entities. I think there can be some uh, some risks uh, having kind of all your eggs in you know one particular bank or whatever. But particularly as you start to reach and breach those two hundred fifty thousand dollar levels, I think it you know definitely can happen here. And I think given enough time, it definitely will happen here. Unfortunately. So is it going to mean people are going to take money out of the weak currencies, the weak countries like uh, Greece or Spain, and put them into stronger currencies like Switzerland and Germany and kind of have a, a mini bank run? Um, you, you could have. Um, it definitely would affect um, currency markets because, I mean, you know, people are trying to pull their money out of uh, – banks in Cyprus, and of course, they, they weren't uh, able to do it. But I mean, they, they were trying to find all kinds of creative ways. And some even went from um, the, you know, the money in Cyprus into, you know, Bitcoin, and then were buying things in, in Bitcoin other places, and, and then liquidating that asset that they bought in Bitcoin, and, you know, things of that sort. So that, you know, people will try to look for any kind of way to uh, avert the system to try to get that money out when governments put that stranglehold on. But it does go to show you that, one, I mean, you can't really react quick enough because the government shut all this stuff down beforehand and then only allowed certain amounts out. So it's really a crying shame because, you know, your, your, your money ought to be risk-free in a bank if you are under your FDIC-insured limits and you're in something conservative like a savings account, checking account, or even a money market or something of that sort. And, and it tells you that in the world that we live in, that is not necessarily a safe assumption to make anymore. What might be the next place that something like this would happen after Cyprus? Um, you know, I, I don't really, I'm, I'm not an expert into which other small European countries necessarily this could happen, but I do know that there's um, some other uh, countries that were having some some issues where this could continue to happen. And I, I think really until Europe has a, uh, a fiscal union, you know, as well as a currency union that could keep happening. And no matter what the case, I think in that scenario, Germany is always going to have the edge 
and those smaller countries over there are going to take it on the uh, on the chin. I just want to get to some of the stocks that you like uh, recently. Um, one of them you talked about is Corning. Uh, why do you like uh, Corning? Yeah, Corning is is almost a uh, you know forgotten about stock. I mean, you can't hardly uh, find somebody that rants and raves over it, but yet um, they make. Uh, some of the glass, or a lot of the glass that goes into smartphones and also into some of your better and higher end laptops, uh, and tablets. And so one, it's a way into, uh, the growth in a lot of those markets that a lot of people aren't thinking about. So it's been an overlooked stock, uh, in there that's definitely growing with the rage in, uh, smartphones and tablets and things of that sort. The other is, is that it's just, it's, it's at a lot lower, um, fundamental valuation than the overall uh, market. So you've got a $19 billion company that's trading, you know, at a P.E. of 10 to 11 when the market, you know, is, is like at 17 or 18. So bottom line, you're paying far less in price for the level of earnings for uh, for Corning than you are your average S&P 500 stock, yet it's still a big enough company, billion, multi-billion dollar market cap, um, <clears throat> and it's, you know, it's, it's earned $2.5 billion uh, in earnings last year. Has over six billion dollars of earnings on its, I mean, cash on its books, et cetera, uh, low debt, and and so it's just really the types of thing that you'd want to see to where you've got a company in a relevant industry doing something in a growing, thriving area, and it's just it's a hard company to compete with when you're dealing on the mag- company with a magnitude of that size with billions of market cap, billions in earnings, billions in cash on their books. Uh, you also like some oil companies, kind of particularly out of favor ones. One particularly comes to mind is Petrobras, the Brazilian oil company, which has really fallen pretty sharply here. What, what is your um, attraction to it at this point? Yeah, it has. You know, a, a number of years ago, uh, Petrobras was just the darling of the markets, and it could do no wrong, and everybody seemingly wanted it. And now the, the thing that's originally drawn me to it is that it's really kind of the opposite um, now. It, it's, it's highly shunned, and, and hardly anybody wants it. And typically, if you you know you, you follow the old Warren Buffett av- adage, you know, get greedy when everybody else is fearful and fearful when everybody else is greedy. In other words, do the opposite of the crowd. You stand a much better chance of profitability. So, um, so I saw you know oil demand coming back, global growth uh, coming back, oil prices headed up overall, and uh, and then this was you know a a uh, kind of a, almost a despised company at this point, uh, but yet was starting to trade at some very cheap valuations. It trades at PEs of anywhere from six to nine, depending on whether you're looking at trailing or, or forward earnings. And it's just an enormous company, a $102 billion company. And, uh, you know, even, even though they didn't have the best year last year, still made $33 billion in earnings and, and it's got $24 billion of cash on their books. So they're, they're a, a company that's gotten beaten down, but yet they're not headed toward, to the dustbin because they make too much in earnings and have too much in cash for that to happen. So it's a play that's going to turn around and I think have a really nice uh, percentage return um, in the uh, months to year to ahead. Very good. About a minute or so we have left. Why don't you just kind of sum up your view of where we are today, particularly in light of this big uh, commodity sell-off and how to play it? Yeah, I think that, 
you know, where, where everybody's getting fearful right now, um, I think, you know, instead we should say, hey, I see opportunity coming, uh, and it's just a matter of letting some of these commodities settle down over the next possibly days or weeks, maybe even a month or two, and then nibbling away at some great commodity stock values and uh, with some very uh, above-average dividend yields and things of that sort, and uh, and locking in those uh, high yields and those low valuations and uh, I think, you know, with somebody with a 24-month uh, outlook, we'll end up sitting pretty as a result. So to me, I see it as opportunity. Very good. My guest has been Sean Hyman. Uh, he is the editor of the Ultimate Wealth Report, and you can find out more about that at Ultimate Wealth Report. He also has a free blog at moneynews.com, and put in his name, and you can get that on a free basis. So thanks so much for being on the Money Answer Show, Sean. We get a lot of information in a very timely way. Okay, thank you. And we'll be back again with another edition of the Money Answer Show next week. Goodbye for now. Thank you for joining Jordan Goodman and the Money Answer Show. If you have a question for Jordan, please visit his website at www.moneyanswers.com. And be sure to tune in every Monday at 12 p.m. Pacific Standard Time right here on Voice America Business. See you next week.